Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Monday, February 24th edition of Bang the Book Radio. My name is Adam Burke, your host for the next hour and five, hour and ten minutes or so, as we go over all kinds of things in the world of sports from a betting focus. Happy to have you with me here as we fire up a new week on Bang the Book Radio. Two segments, one guest here on this Monday edition of the show. I'll start things off with the Betters Box, my MLB betting podcast. I'll talk about the American League Central here to t- here today with my five and fly segment, five minutes on all five teams. Then I'll take a look at some of the injury notes and updates throughout spring training. Second half of today's show, professional handicapper Kyle Hunter from huntersportspicks.com will join me for the handicapping the hardwood segment for this week. You can also find Kyle over at bettersportspicks.com. We spent some time chatting. We actually pre-recorded this segment. We spent some time chatting about the conference tournament structure and how you want to pay close attention to that for a variety of different reasons. Some teams can't make the conference tournament. Some teams will not qualify for the conference tournament. So these last couple weeks of the college basketball regular season, a little bit different for a lot of those teams. Then we went over a handful of games here starting on Tuesday and running on through Friday. Over at bangthebook.com, we are your one-stop shop for sports betting news and information. My 2020 MLB betting guide is posted over there. Season win total write-ups on all 30 Major League Baseball teams. Got uh, division futures, got pennant futures, got World Series futures. Also player futures for the Cy Young in both leagues, the MVP in both leagues, and also the home run king. So tons of content. If you're just a baseball fan or want to learn more about the game, the guide is very good for that. If you're involved in fantasy baseball, the guide will help for that. Then obviously here, betting. Not just season win totals, but on a game-by-game basis. A lot of good information for all of that stuff out there. So hoping to put that up on Amazon here very early in the week this week. Hopefully that'll happen sometime today. Maybe happen Tuesday, maybe happen Wednesday. But uh, very, very proud of that guide. Put a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort into it. So far, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback with that guide. So please head over to bangthebook.com where you can download the PDF or you can look through the individual article pages. Also over at the website, Daily NHL from Parker Michaels, Daily College Basketball and NBA coverage. We've got soccer coverage, golf coverage from James Mazzola with the Honda Classic here coming up this week. NASCAR event out at Auto Club Speedway. I'll have a preview of that for you once we get to the middle of the week here. Uh, We're still covering UFC. Got another UFC event this weekend. Uh, We got a lot of stuff going on over at bangthebook.com, and we'll have a lot of stuff For the conference tournaments as well, I do a conference tournament preview for all 32 conferences. Those start March 3rd, so I'm going to be doing that over at the website here throughout the month of March. These really are my two busiest months of the year with the MLB guide and then all the college basketball stuff we do for conference tournaments and March Madness. So lots of stuff going on over at the website. Please make sure you check it all out. Finally, as you know, this and every edition of Bang the Book Radio Presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. And they've got a lot of those player futures, season win totals, stuff like that over there at DSI. And in fact, I've found some better prices on some of the win totals over there at DSI. So once again, Head on over there and use that BTB200 promo code. 
Now, I will be bringing back the Monday mailbox here pretty soon, but I have had some questions from people that have signed up for the mailing list for the notes from these Better's Box segments, and you can do that by emailing me, adam at bangthebook.com. But I've had some questions about where to get info, and obviously my MLB betting guide would be the first place I would tell you to start. But I get a lot of my information from places like Fangraphs, from a place like Pitcher List. Pitcher List and Alex Fast and the team over there, they do a phenomenal job looking at not just pitchers, but also there's some content with hitters as well. That's very, very good work. Fantasy sites are very good here at this time of the year. Uh, obviously, a lot of fantasy drafts coming up here in the month of March. So they're doing a lot of deep dive studies on pitchers and position players. That's very good information for you. Baseball reference is largely stat-based. There's not a whole lot of articles with analysis over there, but the numbers, if you can't find it at Baseball Reference or Fangraphs, it's not out there. So a lot of great information over at Baseball Reference. The Athletic is worth the subscription price. I think they do a lot of great work. They've got some of the best beat writers in the business over there at The Athletic covering stuff from a wide variety of angles. And also, too, here we talked about spring training betting on Wednesday, last Wednesday's show with Brian Leonard. Those are boots on the ground for the athletic. They actually have the financial coffers to send their people out to spring trading. And in some cases, some of these local papers and beat writers, they don't have the money to do that these days because print media, you know, kind of dying a slow death out there. But a lot of the writers from the athletic will be on the ground at spring training. That's where you're going to find the bulk of your really good info. And finally, baseballsavant.com. That's the home of StatCast data out there on the internet. Mike Petrello at MLB.com does great work covering the StatCast stuff. Uh, but BaseballSavant.com. And in fact, over on our Bang the Book YouTube page, if you sort, search for you know, Bang the Book Fan Graphs or Bang the Book Baseball Savant, something like that, I've done a couple of screencast videos in the past, taking a look at how to use Fan Graphs for handicapping baseball, how to use Baseball Savant for handicapping baseball. Those two videos still very relevant. I think there's some very good information on those two 15-minute clips. So head on over to our Bang the Book YouTube page and check those out. All right, with that, let's go ahead and do the five and fly. I started this on last Thursday's show with a look at the American League East. What this is is I spent five minutes on all five teams within the division. Today it's the AL Central. Coming up here on Thursday, it'll be the American League West. And then obviously after that, we'll have the American League East. We'll wind up with, or the National League East, excuse me, the National League Central and the NL West here. So that'll kind of take us up to the middle of the month of March when I may bring back the betters box full-time on Thursdays, uh, maybe despite the fact that we've got the NCAA tournament going on. But in any event here today, going to start with the AL Central. I'm timing these. I'm trying to hold to about five minutes on every one of these teams here. So here we go with a look at the Chicago White Sox. And to me, I look at the Chicago White Sox here with a season win total of 84 and a half. I think that will be coming down first and foremost. I think this is a team that has a very, very wide range of outcomes. And I've talked about this before that in a general sense, those are the types of teams I want to look to play. I want to look to play on those teams that I think have a very wide range of outcomes. I think the White Sox do. But the problem is, I think this is a team that could finish anywhere from you know, 72 or 73 wins to about where their season win total is. This is a season win total that is an underlook for me. I haven't played it as of yet. 
But I do think as spring training goes along here, I will wind up playing the White Sox under with that negative sentiment about the Indians. I'm kind of waiting to see if I can maybe squeeze out an 85, an 85 and a half, something like that on Chicago. But one of the reasons why this is such a high variance team is because last year they had very high batting averages on balls in play. This is not a sustainable offensive game plan to me. They had low power numbers and a low on-base percentage. Now, in fairness, they did add Yasmani Grandal and Edwin Encarnacion, two guys that hit for power and, most importantly, walk. So this is a lineup that could wind up producing more runs without a really big power upgrade if that team batting average stays high. But Yohan Moncada last year, ran the highest batting average on balls in play since Jose Hernandez in 2002 when Hernandez was at 402. Moncada was at 406. Manny Ramirez back in 2000 was at 400. How about Rod Carew in 1977 at 408? So Moncada had the highest batting average on balls in play since 1977. Now, this is a guy that does make some pretty good contact quality, but it's not something that I would expect to continue here for this season. So Moncada's offensive numbers are going to fall. Then you've got Tim Anderson, who last year had the fifth highest batting average on balls in play. And batting average on balls in play is a statistic open to a lot of variance. So it is one of those ones that I do pay attention to because there's not a whole lot of annual year-over-year correlation with batting average on balls in play. So the fact that Moncada and Anderson had two of the five highest BABIPs in the last basically 50 years, I don't think that's a sustainable offensive profile. The White Sox make a lot of opposite field contact. They don't hit for a lot of power. And this is one of those things that I do expect to regress a little bit. Now, again, with some of their additions, they could contribute in other offensive categories like the walk rate, like the power potential for Grandal and Carnacion. Obviously, you know, a full season of Luis Robert. Uh, You've got Eloy Jimenez, if he's able to stay healthier, and Jimenez, very good opposite field power. But I think the offense is a little bit iffy here. And when you consider that the pitching staff is still littered with massive concerns, the offensive profile becomes that much more concerning for me. I don't know if this is the new Lucas Giolito. I don't know if what we saw last year can translate here this year as well. Giolito did pad his numbers. He had that 12-start stretch where he was absolutely incredible, by and large, against teams like the Indians, who couldn't hit change-ups last year, and against teams like the Royals and the Tigers and you know some of the other bad teams that he faced there from you know mid-May through early July. I'm not completely sold on Lucas Giolito. I think he'll be very good, but I don't think he'll be as great as he was last season. I don't really love this fit for Dallas Keuchel. The White Sox are not a great defensive infield, so that's concerning to me. I wouldn't count on Gio Gonzalez for anything. I'm not real keen on Reynaldo Lopez, although I think he has a little bit higher of a ceiling than what he showed last season. And the bullpen is very weak here for the White Sox as well. You look at Alex Colome, and Alex Colome, one of the biggest regression candidates in baseball, using a metric over at baseball savant called WOBA minus XWOBA. Ex-WOBA is expected WOBA based on uh, exit velocity, launch angle, batted ball direction, things of that sort. Colome got very lucky last year in terms of his WOBA against. So this is a White Sox bullpen that 
I'm not very high on. The offense is concerning to me. And the starting staff isn't very good. Now, if all of these things come together and if some of their young players stay healthy like a Jimenez, like a Robert, if Kopech graduates to the major leagues and pitches better off of Tommy John, they could be a pretty good team. But for now, I think their ceiling is in the mid-80s and their win total is 84 and a half. I'm probably going to wind up with an under bet here on the Chicago White Sox for the 2020 season. Haven't done it yet, but I think this is one that is on my short list and one that eventually will become a play. 86 and a half is the season win total for my Cleveland Indians here. And the last few months have been very, very disappointing for this team. They spent all winter long trying to find the right trade package for Francisco Lindor. They never wound up finding it. They traded away Corey Kluber, which a lot of people call a salary dump. I don't believe that it was. I think the Indians wanted Emmanuel Class A, and I think they should because he's a top five relief prospect here in Major League Baseball. I think the Indians saw exactly what I saw going into the 2019 season with Corey Kluber. The command was on the way down. The control was on the way down. His velocity was decreasing, and he had a massive workload. From 2014 to 2018, the only pitcher to throw more innings than Corey Kluber was Max Scherzer. And we know Max Scherzer is just a freak of nature for the most part. Corey Kluber stayed extremely healthy. Last year's injury was a freak thing. It was a comebacker off the arm that broke his ulna. But still, even with some downtime, that could end up helping him. And I'll talk about that more on Thursday when I get to the Texas Rangers. I think the Indians traded from a position of strength. I think they got out from under Kluber before the bottom could potentially really fall out. So I don't think this was a salary dump, but in the court of public opinion, it looked like one. So that shapes the narrative of the Indians here coming into the season. Now, Mike Clevenger already hurt, torn meniscus, had surgery. He'll be out for at least some of April, if not all of April. Carlos Carrasco limping around with a hip strain, a a hip flexor strain. He seems like he's okay, but obviously we don't know what we're going to get from Carrasco coming off of the lost season last year, having leukemia, coming back in September and throwing some relief innings, but not really working as a starter at all. I don't know what we're going to get from him, but this is an Indians team that has two of the top 20 position players in baseball and two of the top 20 starting pitchers in baseball with Lindor, Jose Ramirez, and obviously Mike Clevenger and Shane Bieber on the pitching side. So this is a very top-heavy team. And you do wonder here how the supporting cast will play out. Now, I do think Franmil Reyes is a guy that could lead baseball in home runs. That would not shock me at all whatsoever. I think he's going to hit 40-plus. We'll see how many more than that he actually gets to. Carlos Santana off of a career year. You expect progression from him, a guy in his mid-30s now. He's not going to put up another career year, probably not sustain that pace. But what do you get from the second-base upgrade of Cesar Hernandez? What do you get from the outfield where you've got the second year of Oscar Mercado, who, by the way, I'm not particularly high on. You've got Jake Bowers, the guy that hit at every level of the minors. Daniel Johnson, same thing, hit at every level of the minors. Jordan Luplo punishes left-handed pitching. They added Domingo Santana. Uh, Roberto Perez walks a lot, hits for power, elite defensive catcher. The Indians have pieces here. The problem is they need a lot of things to go right in order to contend for a playoff spot. But going over 86 and a half wins is not contending for a playoff spot. They could go over this total and still not be a playoff team. Now, again, you've got the concerns with Clevenger, with Carrasco. 
Shane Bieber last year, elite strikeout and walk metrics, but in the fourth percentile at exit velocity, fifth percentile in hard hit percentage, and hard hit percentage is percentage of batted balls hit at 95 plus miles per hour. So Bieber graded very poorly in the contact metrics against. And as a guy with very good command, that's concerning to me. Is this a situation where Bieber runs into worse luck with balls in play, worse luck with the long ball? It's certainly a possibility. Now, I do think people do not realize how good Aaron Savale could be. Elite command, high spin rates, very good in the percentiles for the exit velocity and hard hit percentage contact metrics. The rotation will be good. The bullpen will be solid, assuming Brad Hand is okay. You've got James Karinchak and then Class A, who are two high upside relievers. The problem for the Indians is their margin for error is remarkably thin. If any of those top four guys miss significant time, they won't overcome it like they did last season. This is a team that overachieved big time by the alternate standings metrics. So I do lean over 86 and a half here a little bit. But again, this team is just way too top heavy to fully consider from a season win total standpoint. How about the Detroit Tigers here? 56 and a half, the season win total for the Tigers. And I'm going to go ahead and say it right up front here. This is the worst team in baseball for me. This team is worse than the Baltimore Orioles. This team is worse than the Seattle Mariners. This team is worse than the Miami Marlins. This is the worst team in baseball for this season. So if anything, I'm going under the season win total here for the Tigers. With that being said, the second half for the Tigers could be a lot more fun than the first half. In the minor leagues, you've got Casey Mize. You've got Matt Manning, who's a top 25, top 50 MLB prospect, depending on where you look. You've got Joey Wentz. You've got Alex Fado. You've got some guys that are coming up through the system that will be pitching upgrades for this Detroit Tigers team. The problem is, This offense is awful, in capital letters, awful. Now, they did make some interesting moves here coming into the season. They brought in some one-year rental guys. In fact, we saw a lot of bad teams do this. The Tigers have done this. The Marlins have done this. The Giants have signed every platoon bat under the sun. Bad teams are smart about this because with the uncertainty of what will happen with the next CBA, a lot of these teams probably won't be uh, competitors in the free agent market. And they really have no reason to be. So what you try to do is you try to get these low risk, lower cost, one year rental guys, and then spin them at the trade deadline to get some prospects. So Detroit could be very active at the trade deadline here with guys like CJ Crone, with guys like Jonathan Scope. Maybe they decide to move on from a guy like Matthew Boyd. The problem that I have is that Crone and Scope are two guys that derive just about all of their offensive value from hitting for power. Well, Comerica Park is one of the worst offensive ballparks in Major League Baseball. The outfield is expansive. The center field wall is very deep. The angles in left and right center field are are very deep because the outfield walls just go in a complete slant. It's not one of those ballparks where you've kind of got little cutouts and stuff like that. The walls are just slanted toward that deep center field. So the Tigers' offensive ballpark is very low from a park factor standpoint. So this is a bad offense already, 
that doesn't score at home. The problem last year is that they didn't score on the road either. I believe they scored 12 or 18 more runs on the road, something like that, than they scored at home, which is really problematic because scoring at home is very difficult to do. So guys like Crone, guys like Scope that they brought in for some extra power potential, well, they're not going to hit for power at home. Maybe they hit for power on the road, but they won't hit at Comerica Park. So those are guys where I think their trade values are capped a little bit. But in the second half, the Tigers, if they graduate some of these pitching guys, could be good first five under candidates, maybe full game under candidates, stuff like that. Now, Matt Boyd, who I mentioned could be traded here at the trade deadline in July, a 301 Woba weighted on base average against in the first half, a 344 Woba against in the second half. His strikeout percentage fell. His home run rate went up, and in fact, his home run numbers were worse at home, which is concerning to me going into the next season here. He's a trade candidate, but I don't know how good he'll be. And this Tigers team does not have a good bullpen either. Now, there's one guy I do like on this team, and that's Spencer Turnbull. And last year, Spencer Turnbull only had three wins of the 30 starts that he made. But the stuff is pretty good. The home run rates are okay. If he lowers the walk rate, he may be the only guy that I wind up backing here throughout the season with the Detroit Tigers. Even Matt Boyd is a guy that I'm probably going to look to stay away from. But this Tigers team, again, in the second half, could look a lot different as some of their minor league arms graduate up to the big leagues. But all year long, this offense will be bad. This pitching staff will be pretty poor. The bullpen will be very bad. The only thing I could do with this team is look at the under 56 and a half. But again, you're talking about a very low win total. And I talk about that degrees of awful consideration that I have in my season win total guide where there's not a whole lot of equity in betting on how bad a team will be. They're going to be bad. How bad will they be? Well, I don't know. Do they completely quit in the second half? Do they quit in September or something like that? Well, it's going to lower the projection for that team. But I don't know that. So the Tigers, I think, will be the worst team in baseball, under 56 and a half. But in the second half, they could have some exciting young starters graduating to the big leagues. The Kansas City Royals here, 65 and a half is their season win total. Looks like another long year there at Kauffman Stadium. But I will say this, the lineup could be really fun. Jorge Soler, elite contact metrics last season. I'm talking like, 99th percentile in exit velocity and hard hit percentage. Hit, what, 48, 49 home runs. Big home run spike for him. This looks sustainable to me. When you look at guys that maybe have a, you know, big increase year over year in home runs, maybe it was just one of those things. But a lot of times, it's a launch angle change, like it was with Cattell Marte uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Maybe it's just elite contact quality, and Jorge Soler has that has that elite contact quality, hits the ball violently hard, makes high-quality contact when he makes contact. So that helps in the middle of this lineup. And the top of this lineup is pretty good. Whit Merrifield gets on base a ton. They call him two-hit Whit for a reason because it feels like he has two hits in every game that he plays. That's a guy that I think could get a little bit more aggressive on the base paths this season as well. Last year, his stolen base numbers were down a little bit. If he gets on base at the same or a higher clip this season, I would expect him to run a little bit more. Same thing with Adalberto Mondesi. Mondesi coming off of some major injuries last year. Very exciting player. Extremely exciting player. He makes things happen. The problem is he doesn't get on base very much. 
but he hits for a little bit of power, steals a lot of bags, pretty good shortstop as well. Very exciting player, a guy that could really help the ceiling for this Kansas City Royals team for this season. Hunter Dozier's coming off of a fine year. Mikel Franco from uh, the Phillies, he's a bounce-back candidate. You know, Franco's a guy that a few years ago hit, you know, 25, 30 home runs. Not a high on-base percentage guy, but hits for a little bit of power. The Kansas City Royals lineup could be pretty good. The Kansas City Royals pitching staff will not be any good. Jake Junis allows a ton of home runs, did the same thing two years ago that he did last year. Just not a good, just not good command from Jake Junis, and he's primarily a two-pitch pitcher, which makes things a lot easier for the opposition. Brad Keller, you know, he's a high ground ball guy, saw a strikeout spike in the second half, but also saw a drop in command. He's not a guy that's high on my list for this season. Another thing that's not high on my list here is that the Royals get Salvador Perez back. There is a massive, enormous, canyon-esque difference of opinion between what Kansas City Royals fans think of Salvador Perez and what everybody else thinks of Salvador Perez. He is a bad baseball player. He's okay at throwing out runners. He's pretty good at throwing out runners. That's really the only attribute that he has. Hits for a little bit of power, but he's a low on-base percentage guy. Poor contact quality otherwise. And he's been a bottom five catcher in framing runs over the last several seasons. Salvador Perez does not help this pitching staff. I want to make that very clear. I don't have anything against the guy personally. He's just not a good baseball player. And people think that he is for some reason. And I don't know why. But he won't help this pitching staff. He will not steal strikes for these bad pitchers. And when you look at the splits going from a one and two count to a two and one count, they are substantial, man. If you can steal strikes, it goes a long way. If you go from one and two to a strikeout or one and two to two and two, it is dramatically different. Even a first pitch strike from a first pitch ball is dramatically different. You want a guy that can frame for you. You want a guy that can steal those strikes. Salvador Perez can't do it. Another thing that worries me here about the Royals is Mike Matheny. Mike Matheny goes from being the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, inheriting a very good team from Tony La Russa, to inheriting this Royals team. And there are pieces to build around for Kansas City, don't get me wrong. But Matheny goes from managing a proven commodity to a team in a rebuild. And I don't think Mike Matheny is a very good manager anyway. So I don't like this fit. I don't like this pitching staff. The best reliever, Ian Kennedy, will be traded throughout the season because he's an impending free agent, and he was actually pretty good as a closer last year. So he will be traded. The offense could be fun, but nothing else will be fun about this Royals team. Under 65 and a half is the only way that I could look here. Not a bet for me at this time. They could be a team where we bet some overs on a game-by-game level throughout the course of the season. But I think under their season win total is the only way I could look because they're probably going to have some trade pieces here once they get to the month of July. Finally, the Minnesota Twins here. Season win total, 92.5 for the reigning AL Central Division champions. And I will tell you this, this is on my short list of win totals to bet. I do like the over here with the Twins. This line is too low. But I'm waiting for spring training to play out because this is a team that does not have great depth from a starting pitching standpoint. Now, last year, we saw a big strikeout spike with Wes Johnson, who was a college pitching coach 
no pro ball experience, but comes over from the collegiate ranks, known in college as the czar of velocity, wants strikeouts, wants guys to throw harder. And we saw that to a degree uh, with some of these guys here for the Twins, in particular with their relievers. Jose Barrios really fell off in the second half. I worry about that. I worry about the velocity decrease. I worry about the command drop. But he did have more strikeouts in the second half. So that provides a little bit of hope for me with Barrios. They get Kenta Maeda. He comes over from the Dodgers. Some questions about that. I talked about that in my preview where Maeda's a guy with some home road splits. And now he goes from Chavez Ravine with an elite defense with the Dodgers to target field with a pretty good defense with the Twins. But it is a league change. It is a new environment. Now you face the DH every time through the lineup. So I think Maeda's ceiling is capped a little bit here. I think he'll still be very good. I don't think he'll be as great as people may be expecting. Jake Odorizzi, is he for real? The strikeout rate up, the walk rate down, the home run per fly ball percentage came down. Pretty good year for Odorizzi last year. Is that a guy that Wes Johnson maybe just tapped into and found some extra potential? I think that definitely is a possibility there with Odorizzi. But I don't know what I'm going to get from Homer Bailey. I don't know what I'm going to get from Rich Hill. And this is a team that does not run deep past the Major League starting group. So that does worry me with Minnesota on the pitching side, or the starting pitching side. Now, on the bullpen side, I think this is a unit in line for some modest regression. I still think they'll be in the top half of the American League. I don't think they'll be a top three bullpen like they were last year. You look at a guy like Taylor Rogers, for example, 32.4% strikeout percentage, but only a 10.9% swinging strike rate. Now, the league average for starting pitchers was 10.1% from a swinging strike percentage standpoint. The league average for relievers last year, 11.8%. It is very hard to carry an elite strikeout rate with a below average strikeout percentage. So that's what Taylor Rogers is up against here, last year's closer and multi-inning guy for the Minnesota Twins. But I do think a guy like Tyler Duffy, who ran a 15.4% strikeout rate, probably going to be a little bit better. He can still carry his elite K percentage. Overall, this bullpen will be good. I just don't think it will be as great as it was last season. Okay, so I don't like the pitching staff. But why do I like the Twins over? This has a chance to be the best offense in the American League and second best offense to the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is a team that makes elite contact quality. Miguel Sano was top five. Uh, Nelson Cruz is always top five. Josh Donaldson was top five. Mitch Garver was in the top 15, top 20. This is a team that makes a lot of high-quality contact. They make a lot of barreled baseballs. What barrels mean is that that is a batted ball with a high exit velocity, an optimized launch angle, and a barreled ball has an expected batting average of 500 and an expected slugging percentage of 1.500. So more often than not, barreled balls are either really hard-hit singles, doubles, triples, or home runs. Minnesota makes a lot of barrel contact. This is going to be an elite offense because they hit the ball extremely hard. I think Miguel Sano could be an MVP candidate. I think he's a home run king candidate. Per my research, you can check out that article over at bangthebook.com. We know Nelson Cruz hits the ball hard and just doesn't age. Garver hits the ball hard. Josh Donaldson hits the ball extremely hard. 
they're going to make a lot of positive contact this season. This will be a top five offense in baseball. I think it could very well be the best offense in the American League. And like I said, probably second to the Los Angeles Dodgers and maybe potentially could be first if the Dodgers hadn't gotten Mookie Betts. That is how high I think the ceiling is for this Minnesota Twins offense. So they are an over 92 and a half consideration for me. Best offense in the division and just a lot of things to like about the offensive side for this team. And I think with Wes Johnson, the pitching staff could be a little bit better here as well. All right, so 25 minutes and 10 seconds there on the Central Division in my five and fly segment. Not too bad there with that. We take a look at some spring training injuries here to wrap up the betters box, and then we'll talk college basketball with Kyle Hunter here. Rogelio Armenteros for the Astros has been shut down with an injury. This is problematic. The Astros already have depth issues. They're saying Josh James looks really good in camp. He makes the transition from relieving to starting. You've got Lance McCullers off of Tommy John. You've got Zach Granke in his mid-30s. He shows up late to camp. You've got Justin Verlander in his late 30s coming off of back-to-back career seasons. You don't have Garrett Cole anymore. I'm getting extremely worried about this Astros starting rotation. Armenteros was a guy that was probably going to make it as a fifth starter type of dude, but now getting shut down, I can't see that being the case. He won't make the team out of spring training. This Astros team, and while they are a pitching factory and they do have guys with a lot of high spin rates and stuff like that, it's starting to get problematic. You know, Forrest Whitley, their top pitching prospect, has not pitched a whole lot over the last two, three years. The Astros have big concerns on the starting pitching side. Now, of course, their bullpen is very good once again, and they'll still out-hit a lot of mistakes. They're still going to be very, very good. But with each passing day, the ceiling for this Astros team gets a little bit lower for me. And this Armenteros injury is just another one. Talk about cluster injuries. I'll talk about one here in a minute. But this is a problem for the Astros. It's something I think is very is worth watching here closely as they go throughout spring training. The cluster injuries have hit the New York Yankees. Just after I finished recording, just after I finished posting the show on Thursday, it came out that Luis Severino has been shut down. He's seeing specialists, which is never a good thing. Now you've got a Yankees team here with James Paxton already on the shelf, Severino now hurt, and Domingo Herman suspended for the first half of the season. The Yankees may be forced to accelerate the plan for a guy like Davey Garcia. Their starting pitching questions are getting to be very, very big now. And Severino was a guy with elite-level upside. He was a huge addition to this pitching staff. If they don't have him for 150-plus innings, and you're talking about them trying to get to a season win total of 101.5, I'm worried about this team. I Like I said on Thursday's show, I like the Tampa Bay Rays over. I like the Tampa Bay Rays at plus 650 to possibly win that division. I like the Rays in the 16 to 20 to 1 range. Or no, they're even 30 to 1 to win the World Series at some places. I like that bet. The Yankees have problems, man. They have a lot of guys on the position player side that deal with a lot of injuries too. So I'm very concerned about the Yankees. Very concerned about looking at that over that I mentioned in my betting guide with this Severino news. Just because with all these injuries adding up, their ceiling gets lower and lower and lower. And I like the Rays. I really do like the Rays there in that American League East. Eduardo Rodriguez slipped on a backfield for the Boston Red Sox. He already has chronic knee problems. Now they're taking it easy with him due to a left knee issue. Watch this one closely. 
I mentioned this on Thursday's show. No commentary on Eduardo Rodriguez, the person. But the Red Sox aren't going to give him a contract extension, it doesn't look like, given that they took him to arbitration over a paltry sum of money. If he's not feeling close to right, he may take it easy here. And you will go with that body preservation for that free agent contract because you don't get a lot of those opportunities in Major League Baseball as a pitcher. So watch Rodriguez closely here. That is a growing concern there for the Boston Red Sox. Finally, just watch for a lot of soft tissue injuries in general. Guys working out, guys swinging the bats a lot more. You're bound to see oblique issues. And keep in mind, an oblique here in late February probably takes you out into the last week of spring training, if not the first week of the regular season. For a hitter, that means you probably don't come back until April, mid-April, something like that. If you're a pitcher, you're probably out until May. So watch for those obliques. Watch for those intercostal things. All of those are going to have an impact on the ceilings for the teams here around Major League Baseball. I'll be back on Thursday with another edition of the Betters Box here, taking a look at the American League West. And, of course, you can email me, adam at bangthebook.com, to get on the mailing list here for the Betters Box notes. We got one guest here to round out this Monday, February 24th edition of Bang the Book Radio. That is professional handicapper Kyle Hunter from huntersportspicks.com as well as bettersportspicks.com. Kyle, how's it going today, man? Pretty well, man. Uh, I wanted to start off today's segment by saying uh, props to you for doing the uh, baseball preview article again. Uh, All the articles, I should say, the guide. I have to tell you guys, you know, I, I don't just say this because Adam is my friend and we do this show together. Uh, that baseball research is second to none. You're not going to find that kind of work anywhere else. So if you don't, if you haven't looked at that in previous years, I highly suggest that. Well, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. It, it takes a lot of time, but you know what? It helps me organize my thoughts for the season. It'll help everybody else kind of get into the right mindset for the season here. And of course, that coming out uh, last Thursday, really last Wednesday and Thursday with the team previews, Friday with the PDF should be up on Amazon here early in the week as well. Plenty of ways to get it over a month until opening day. So lots of time to digest it because, well, to be honest, it is a relatively long read, but I definitely appreciate the props for that. Thank you so much, man. And uh, we got a lot of college basketball stuff to get to here as we kick off this week ahead. And something we wanted to make sure that we spent some time on here is that for quite a few conferences, in fact, 13 of them, This is the last week of the regular season. So as we go through the top of today's segment, we'll talk about some of those conference tournaments. We'll talk about some of the conference tournaments where not everybody gets into the field. And obviously here, motivation can be a big factor the last couple weeks of the regular season. Yeah, this is the time of the year where you start thinking about who cares about this game, who doesn't care about this game. And you also have to keep in mind that it's still price dependent because you know how we get these spots where it's, you know, every, this team has to win this game, but they're really not that good. So um, while you want to handicap that, you at the same time don't want to overrate that. So I think it's it's interesting time of the year um, to where, you know, as a handicapper, um, I think it's a time of the year where you don't want to bet too many games. I, I, I actually like betting quite a bit of volume uh, most of the season. This is the time of the year where I think you have to be at least somewhat careful because it can be hard to understand motivation from from one game to another, especially when uh, two teams don't care too much. Maybe you want to play the over based on uh, the fact that there's probably going to be less defense. But 
Um, these questionable motivation games can be difficult. I think it's good that we're going to point out some of these ones where uh, some teams should care more than others. Yeah, and as we take a look here, again, we will be back on the air on Monday, March 2nd, which is the day before conference tournaments begin. March 3rd begins the Atlantic Sun, the Big South, the Horizon, and the Patriot League. March 4th is actually going to be the Mountain West. We also have the Ohio Valley. And then on March 5th, we get the West Coast Conference. Uh, We get the Missouri Valley Conference. No, I think one tournament starts on March 6th. A couple start on March 7th, including the Colonial. So this is the last week of the regular season for some of those really small conferences that are out there, which also means there are some important games, some games with seeding on the line, some games where maybe buys in the conference tournament are on the line. And of course, in some of these really small conference tournaments too, like the America East, like the Atlantic Sun, the Big South, you've got campus games throughout the tournament to where home court advantage could wind up being a really big factor. So some games really do matter. Some games don't. And that will also impact the totals too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the totals market is is very interesting this time of the year. And, it, and this is a fairly widely known concept. So I want to say it and I want to say that, you know, um, keep this in mind as far as um, totals, whether you want to bet overs or unders, if you want to take unders, I think you want it to be a game where both teams care. It's uh, a game where both teams are pretty good late in the season. If you look at this, uh, there, there are some pretty strong angles with teams that are 60%, both teams over 60% wins late in the season playing against each other. Maybe they're playing for the league title or something like that in one of the last couple of regular season games. The under's done really well in that, in that case. So uh, the over has done well when you get take two teams that are – you know, 40 or 45 percent wins playing against each other that it it really doesn't matter to them. Now, I will say um, if you want to do that, also, you want to play the over early in games like that. And you want to play the under early in the games that I mentioned a minute ago, because like I said, I think, um, you know, this is becoming a more widely known concept. But at the same time, you want to be careful about this, because if there is a game between two teams who aren't very good, but at the same time, they have to win this game to get into their conference tournament. I think that game means more. Well, and speaking of that, you know, we can just kind of use the Ivy League as an example because, first of all, you love the Ivy League. So anytime oh. we get a chance to talk about it, I make it a point to do it. Um, but only four of the eight teams in the Ivy League make the conference tournament. And on Friday, I wrote up a preview of Princeton and Harvard. And when you look at the Ivy League here, at least going into play this past weekend, Dartmouth was three games behind Harvard, Penn, and Brown. So you've got three teams at the bottom of the Ivy League that right now don't really have a whole lot to play for except for playing spoiler. And there are other conferences where not everybody makes it. In the America East, only the top eight teams out of the nine are going to make it. So teams like Maine and Binghamton look to be on the chopping block. In the Atlantic Sun, North Alabama is one of those transitioning teams uh, to Division One, they are ineligible for postseason play. So their last game will be their last regular season game. Only 12 of the 14 teams from Conference USA make the conference tournament. In the Horizon League, Detroit Mercy is ineligible because of some NCAA penalties and sanctions. So their last regular season game is their final game. In the Northeast Conference, Merrimack, who could very well win the conference in the regular season, They're one of those transitioning teams, so all they're playing for right now 
is that regular season championship because they can't go to the conference tournament. That's also a conference where the bottom two teams are excluded, which right now looks like Wagner and Central Connecticut State. The Southland Conference also only takes the top eight. So you've got some teams that will be eliminated from their conference tournaments. They won't qualify for them. Then you've got teams playing for buys, playing for double buys, things of that sort. Take a few minutes here this weekend and next weekend to see what these conference tournament structures look like and see what these teams really have to play for. Because if you can get a double buy, you only have to win the semifinals and the finals to punch your ticket to the to the NCAA tournament, which is the case in a conference like the Ohio Valley. That means a lot. Oh, yeah, that double double buy is really important. If you can get something like that, you're going to play really hard for it. And I think the other thing I would like to look for is, you know, some of these conferences you pointed out, like let's say this uh, Conference USA, you got some teams at the bottom there who are fighting for the last positions. A team like UTEP really has more talent than some of those other teams at the bottom. You would think that, you know, they may be able to rise up enough to get into uh, the, the end of that conference tournament. Uh, I would look for teams who – Coming into the year, they were supposed to be better than what they are. Um, they have a, enough talent that you would think that, you know, they're certainly one of the top 10 or 12 teams or whatever it is in that conference. I think that teams like that would be good teams to back here in, in spots like this because uh, I think they have enough pride and, and enough talent to where they could probably play their way into it. Um, as far as some of the others, I think the Ivy League actually was a really good example. <laughs> I'll give you credit for bringing up the Ivy League, which I, I would say is pretty rare on here. But um, the Ivy League, you know, like you said, you've got three teams at the bottom that have nothing to play for. I mean, when those teams are playing each other late in the year, there could be some really strange games. And I, I would definitely lean toward the over instead of the under, especially you're going to get some pretty low numbers with teams like uh, Columbia or Dartmouth. Uh, because they play some of those really low-scoring, uh, very slow-paced games, uh, they're not going to care to want to slow the game down in, in the last couple games of the year because what does it matter to them anymore? I mean, so um, that that could be a very inter interesting one to keep an eye on. And I think that, you know, uh, pointing out the different conference structures, like you said, with the double buy in some conferences, other conference tournaments, it doesn't really matter too much whether you're the top seed or the second seed. You know, you pretty much have the same setup. So um, looking into things like this is really important this last week of the regular season. Like you said, uh, this is the last week of the regular season for these smaller conferences, and then it'll be next week for the bigger conferences. Well, and you look at a team like UTEP. I mean, yeah, as you said, you know, they were supposed to be better than they are. That's a team fighting to get into the conference tournament. You're going to have other teams that were supposed to be better than they are that are already in the conference tournament, and maybe they don't care over the last one or two regular season games. They'll flip the switch, try to get that berth in their conference tournament, try to play you know, their three best games in a row to get that automatic ticket, You know, whereas here in the regular season, they don't care as much. So that's always a factor with some of these teams here too. One other thing I want to ask you about, at least as far as, as motivation goes, like we talked about, last week of the regular season for a lot of small conferences, the following week will be the last week of the regular season for everybody else, means you're going to have a lot of senior days. What does senior day mean to you in a general sense? Uh, you know, I've, I've heard this debated time after time, and I, I think that senior day is, is a pretty big unknown. I mean, I think it's better to be honest than it is to try to blow smoke here, and I'm just going to say that I don't really know what senior day means. I know that some teams can come out very um, off kilter because, 
you know, this is this is senior day and there's a lot of pressure, you know, everybody's there to watch. Probably would tend to go against that team in the first half more than anything else and probably want to back that team in the second half. But I don't have any great angle that, you know, I think is going to be, you know, senior day, you've got to blindly bet the under, bet the over, back that team, go against that team. Honestly, I think that um, that can become a bit narrative based where some people just want to uh, use senior day as a, as a reason to make a bet where I, I don't know that that's the case in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I, I understand both sides of the coin, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it, it it can be an emotional day, especially if you've got a senior, say somebody like a Mike Dom from South Dakota State last year, somebody like that who just means everything to the program, rewrote all the records, something like that. I mean, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet, but at the same time, you hope that he's going on to bigger and better things. So, you know, again, I mean, it, it's, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, but to me, it's not really something that pushes me one way or another when it comes to a bet. Let's see if we can push our listeners one way or another here in a handful of games for this week. And obviously recording this here on Monday, we don't have any lines out for these games, but we still have plenty to talk about here. We start on Tuesday and we start in the Mac, which not a very good conference here this year at all whatsoever. But we have an interesting game on Tuesday night between Akron and Bowling Green. Pretty important one here in the MAC East division. And a Bowling Green team that got blown out in the first meeting when they played at the jar in the Rubber City. Yeah, both these teams have several games left. So the MAC tournament's not here for a little while. Um, Dylan Fry quit the team for Bowling Green and then comes back. I think that's certainly an interesting um case where you know you're not going to see that too often and Dylan Fry a guard that played almost all the time you know very important to his team um, certainly important part of this this Bowling Green offense you know to me um, they didn't have him in that first game I, I think that means a lot they lost 74 to 59 in that one um, Fry coming back you know while it may be a strange occurrence you know you're not used to a guy coming back after he quits the team um, you know, I think that it should help them quite a bit here. And I will say that, you know, we've talked about this a little bit already. Nobody in the MAC is really that good. And I don't really trust Akron laying a number here on the road. I think my lean here would be toward Bowling Green. I also lean toward the under a bit. I think this game is a fairly important game here. First game was a, a low-scoring game where both teams shot it really poorly. Um, I, I'd be curious to see what kind of total we get if we get a total north of 150. I probably lean to the under in this one, and I also lean toward taking the home dog. Well, and you look at the games without Fry here, and you know they play that Toledo game, they play that big rivalry game, and they get that victory. And in fact, they scored 85 points in the process. That's kind of that, not that he's a superstar by any means, but it's kind of that superstar subtraction theory where a team's missing a big player, they wind up rallying. And the thing about Fry is that he has the highest assist rate on this team. So he's kind of the facilitator for the offense. They temporarily rally in that game against Toledo. Then they play that game against Akron, and they have a season-low .819 points per possession, get a few days of practice in, kind of rally, play well there against Ball State. So you do wonder how this game goes differently, having a player like him back, in particular because, man, I know that Akron is, is probably the best team in this conference, but they've been very inconsistent this year. 
Yeah, this this is a conference tournament that I'm looking forward to talking about because it's going to be wide open. You know, Akron is, I guess, the best team in the conference. I mean, you kind of think about it. And you you see some of Akron's performances and you wonder how they could be the best team in the conference. Uh, Buffalo's a lot worse than I thought they would be this year. So uh, having said that, Buffalo beat Akron earlier this year. I believe that was at Akron. So, um, you know, this is a this is a conference that's going to be wide open. I think this should be a good game. Um, I'm going to guess that Bowling Green is catching, you know, three or three and a half points in this game. Um, I probably won't bet this game. I, w- I would lean Bowling Green plus the points, and I also lean to the under. All right, so a big one here in the Big Ten coming up on Tuesday night. Iowa and Michigan State, awesome win for Iowa last Thursday. They knock off Ohio State 85-76. to 76. They were able to have a big offensive showing against what's been a pretty good Buckeyes defense here throughout the course of the season. Michigan State, people are going to say, yeah, it was Nebraska, and I get that, but it was also on the road, and they won by 21 points. Maybe something of a get-right game for Tom Izzo's team after losing four of their previous five. What do you see here from this one Tuesday night in East Lansing? So I have quite a few thoughts on this one. I'll first start off by saying Iowa is just a completely different team playing away from home versus at home. Uh, Really good home court advantage. I think you could argue that they've gotten a a good whistle at home this year. Uh, Some of their free throw stats at home versus on the road are pretty um, dramatically different. So Iowa, a team that, you know, Luca Garza is a really good player. And I mean, you know, you don't find big men as skilled as he is very often and very fundamentally sound. He can also step out and hit the three. Um, Spart- the Spartans have more guys that could guard him than do uh, most guys in the Big Ten, most teams in the Big Ten, because, you know, Garza really, I mean, Caleb Wesson couldn't stop him at all for Ohio State. Many people haven't been able to stop him. I think for Iowa, the big question is, are they going to play man or are they going to play zone here? Because they've been trying to play zone to hide their bad defense. The problem with this is Michigan State in the top 4% in the country against zone defense. So they've been really, really good offensively against the zone. And really, if Iowa tries to play a zone here, you would think the Spartans really beat up this zone, especially with their offensive rebounds as well. You know, it's hard to rebound out of the zone. I was is playing that zone not really because they want to, but because they've been so bad in man-to-man defense. I think Michigan State can beat that zone defense. I think there could be a good amount of points in this game. Um, I will say that, you know, it's hard to back the Spartans laying points based on the way they've been playing here of late. You know, they lose the game at home to Penn State, have a bad performance at Michigan, um, lose at home to Maryland. At the same time, I'm hoping that makes this line shorter because I I would lean Michigan State in this game, certainly. I think that Michigan State matches up better with Iowa uh, than a lot of teams do against uh, Luca Garza. And at the same time, like I said, Iowa has has pulled uh, using that zone defense to uh, trick Minnesota and Ohio State a bit. I don't think that works against Michigan State. Well, and it sounds like you're kind of looking towards the over here. So where do you sort of have this total? I think this total is probably going to be 153, 153 and a half, somewhere in that range. A lot of totals that are that high get bet down on the open. So maybe it opens 154 and, you know, finishes 152 or 153 or something like that. But I, I do lean to the over. I think that uh, Iowa wants to push the pace uh, pretty often. At the same time, Michigan State, uh, not a team that really tries to slow the game down. And if Iowa does play that zone defense, which usually makes the game lower scoring, I think Michigan State scores pretty easily on that zone. 
Well, a game where it could be very tough to take the over here on Wednesday night, Virginia and Virginia Tech. Virginia won the first meeting here this year, 65 to 39, 0.624 points per possession for this Virginia Tech team. They were 13 of 48 from the floor in that game. Obviously an embarrassing effort for them there in Charlottesville. Now the game's in Blacksburg. Does this one go any differently for the Hokies? You know, I remember that game pretty well. I went into that game having two leans. And I thought, I don't want to play both of these because I don't like this game enough. But I want to play something here because I liked both the under and the side of Virginia Tech plus the points. I took the wrong thing there. So uh, Virginia Tech plus the points didn't work out at all. The under was a good play, certainly. Um, You know, Virginia has been a little bit. nine possessions they score uh 73 points against north carolina they put up 64 points on the road and then against boston college 78 points in a game with only 60 possessions so virginia has certainly been better on offense than they were now am i saying i want to take the over in this game no i'm not i i just would be afraid to take under 110 or under 109 and a half or something i mean these numbers get so really low that all it takes is a stretch of you know a few made threes in a row and you're in trouble So I would caution on taking too low of an under at the same time. You know, what do I make of the side here? Virginia Tech's a tough team for me to figure out. I mean, they really have not been playing very well. I think Virginia Tech is a um, a well-coached team. I think Mike Young's a good coach. Uh, They've played three overtime games here in the past month, uh, double overtime against Carolina that they won at home, an overtime loss at home against Boston College, which is a pretty bad loss, and then the triple overtime loss at home against Miami So, you know, I don't know what to make of them. I think I know what Virginia is. I don't know that I want to bet this game, but I think that uh, Virginia Tech will be ready for this game. At the same time, you know, uh, Virginia is playing better, and Virginia is a very well-coached team. So um, I would caution against playing the under at an extremely low number, but I don't have anything strong here. All right, maybe we got something stronger here as we go down to the SoCon, and we love to talk about – the SOCON, we'd love to talk about mid-majors and under-the-radar conferences in general, but we've actually got two games of interest here in the SOCON on Wednesday night. Let's start with the one that you know I think is probably going to draw a little bit more attention. That is Furman on the road at UNC Greensboro. Two very, very good teams here, obviously. Greensboro won the first game by 13. That was on the road at Furman. Do the Paladins come back and, and get a little bit of revenge here? So here's another game that I have quite a few thoughts on. I do have a stronger opinion on this game. I will say that um, Michigan State, leaning Michigan State and the over, I like that one pretty well. But uh, this one as well, I'll say Furman lost at home, like you said. We're really pretty embarrassed in that game. Road revenge is generally a good angle, and you know you can you can hit 55% ATS or 54% ATS just taking road revenge. Um, I, in this one, I'm going to go against that. I, I think the matchup here favors UNC Greensboro. Um, I le- really like their coaching staff. I think Greensboro is a, a really well-coached team. Uh, Furman plays East Tennessee State and then Wofford before this one. So they play two of the other top teams. I don't think that does them any favors here, especially because you look at Furman. They really don't play very many guys. Their bench is weak. Um, th- their starters have to play a lot of minutes. Also, UNC Greensboro with the full-court press. They've been very good with full-court pressure so far this year. And Furman's turnover rate, you'd say, well, their turnover rate looks pretty good. 
But if you look at them only against the press, their turnover rate is 26.4% against full court pressure. That's really, really weak. So uh, UNC Greensboro, to me, likely to use that full court press and really bother Furman. UNC Greensboro then can get some quick scores off of that. Greensboro is certainly the better half-court defense as well than Furman, and they're the more uh, deep team, like I mentioned before. So uh, while I usually like to go with the, the road revenge angle, I like UNC Greensboro here. I'm curious to see what kind of line we get. I don't think we'll have to lay too many points here, but you know, if we're laying three and a half or four points, I think I like Greensboro in this one. Furman with 17 turnovers there in the first game. Greensboro had 11. So extra possessions there in that regard. Greensboro had 11 offensive rebounds to Furman's eight. Those extra possessions really, really matter. And that's why I know you're big at looking at offensive rebounding. And obviously you always want to pay attention to turnover rates. And look, Furman is just not a good offensive rebounding team. They haven't been all year long. And you know Greensboro kind of kind of speed them up a little bit. Maybe does lead us to more turnovers and some extra possessions there for the Spartans. But let's go to the other game here in the SoCon, because while the other game may be better between Furman and Greensboro, this one may be more important for the simple fact that East Tennessee State is kind of on that at-large bubble. Last week, they did beat Furman, a game that you and I talked about on this very show. Now they get a tough test from Wofford on the road. And if East Tennessee State wants to stay in that at-large discussion, they don't have any margin for error here against the Wofford team. It's not as good as last year, but still very solid. Yeah, East Tennessee State has a pretty favorable uh, schedule here down the stretch. This is their tough game. So uh, you would think that they would be up for this game. Uh, Like you said, we talked about that Furman game. Um, East Tennessee State did take care of business in that game and cover um, so, uh, you know, we were on the right track in that game, certainly. Wofford is better than their record would indicate. You know, if you look at this team and say they're 16 and 12, uh, you know, they've lost four four games straight in the conference. Um, you know, they have really lost some close games. They, this is a good team. Obviously, they won at North Carolina. We know North Carolina is not what they've been in the past, but that's still a really big win here. Um, Wofford's a tricky team. And East Tennessee State, like you said, they really can ill afford to to make a misstep at this point because if they lose here and then they lose in the conference tournament, I don't think they're getting in the big dance. And I, I want them to get in the big dance, so hopefully they don't do that. But East Tennessee State, a really well-coached team. I've said this many times on the podcast. I'll say this again. Um, I, you know, I feel like East Tennessee State is really, really well-coached by Steve Forbes. I think that it's pretty surprising to me that he hasn't gotten a bigger job than this. And I, I don't think that will last. Um, East Tennessee State, a really aggressive team, a team that really um, goes after the offensive rebounds. If you look at Wofford, Wofford has been very good on the defensive glass, especially in the conference, only giving up 23.7% second chance. So uh, this is a Wofford team that I think will give them a good game. I think this game would probably be a lower scoring game. So I'm going to say my strongest lean here is the under. I don't really have any good feel for which side I want in this game. All right, so let's jump ahead to Saturday here where we got a couple of uh, lower major conference games, I guess I would say. And we haven't talked a whole lot of Summit League yet here on the show, but obviously we will once their conference tournament rolls around. South Dakota State takes on North Dakota State. Now, South Dakota State coming off of a rivalry game against South Dakota, that was a revenge spot for them as well and as we know win or lose coming off of a rivalry game 
is a very challenging thing to do. And it's doubly challenging when you talk about the fact that you know this game has substantial standings implications for this upcoming conference tournament. Absolutely. This game is a Thursday night. So a Thursday night game here uh, in the Summit League, these are pretty similar teams, to be honest with you. You look at the, the breakdown of these two teams, they're both strong offensively. Neither team forces any turnovers on defense. They don't foul much or give up second chance points. Let's be honest, in the Summit League, nobody plays defense. So everybody's good at offense. Nobody's really very good at defense. North Dakota State's first in the Summit League in defense, but they're really not very good at defense. Uh, Both teams shoot it well. This game's going to mean a lot. So you would think that the defense would be a little bit better than normal or else they'll play a bit slower pace because this game means so much. It's important to say this this is South Dakota State's last game. North Dakota State plays – on Saturday the 29th, where South Dakota State, this is their final game. So, um, you know, this is a game that means a lot to to who will win the Summit League. Again, I'm going to say I don't have a strong lean here in this game. If they put a number high enough, maybe I'd take the under based on it being one of those uh, late season, uh, re- late regular season unders between two good teams. But um, not a game that I, I love to bet, but it is a game that I think is is very fascinating because – uh, these are the two best teams in the Summit League, and I'm looking forward to getting to talk about this uh, conference a little bit more, too, when we get to conference tournament time. So am I, and, and let me just ask you this here as we kind of plant a seed for the conference tournament. I mean, are either of these teams potentially dangerous, you know, to a you know, 14-3 or, or a 15-2 or maybe even a 12-5 type of matchup? I don't think they are. I, I think the Summit League is down some. I, I think that um, South Dakota State was the favorite to win this league. South Dakota State, I mean, uh, Wilson's a good player for them. Uh, Tyson Ward's a really good player for North Dakota State. But I don't feel like they have somebody like Mike Dom that can really uh, dominate a game. Okay, yeah, I know that was a bad <laughs> one. But, um, um, it, it, you know, this is a league where I think they're down quite a bit. I, I think they would get a fairly low seed, so – I don't think we'd have a, a 5-12 or anything. I think it'd be like a 3-14 or something like that. So um, I think that neither of these teams are locked to win the, the Summit League. I don't think that, you know, I certainly think it's possible that somebody that's rated third or fourth or fifth could win the Summit League Conference Tournament. I like that. Dominate. Very nice. Well done. <laughs> I, I'm sure that wasn't intentional, but uh, I'm going to give you props for that one to be sure here. One more game for Thursday to talk about, then one more for Friday that I just want to hit on here real quickly. But we go out to the WAC, New Mexico State and Grand Canyon. Now, Grand Canyon isn't as good as they've been in the past, but I've got a sneaking suspicion there's a reason why you want to talk about this game. Yeah, I think you know why I want to talk about this game. New Mexico State, let's look at what they are in the conference. They're they're unbeaten. They're 21-6 overall. They're not getting a... a at large bid no matter what. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if they go undefeated in the conference or not. They just have to win the conference tournament. Grand Canyon, a really good home court advantage. I have to be honest, this is the spot where I'd really like to go watch a game at Grand Canyon in person. Um, You know, that home court advantage looks really impressive. Grand Canyon has been disappointing this year. However, they have certainly played better basketball of late here, rounding into form a little bit here. New Mexico State is a very, very... Um, respected team by the betting markets. So I think this number will will open at a lower number than what it'll close. So if you like Grand Canyon, like I am leaning toward, I think you want to wait till later on. I like New Mexico State a lot as a team. I'm not doubting that they're better than Grand Canyon, but 
New Mexico State has beaten Grand Canyon many, many times in the last few years by two, three points overtime, you know, really close games. Uh, this is a really good spot for Grand Canyon. I mean, if Grand Canyon were ever going to get up and pull an upset, this is a good spot for it. I don't know if they'll win the game. I do think that they could be a good look at, you know, plus six or something like that. Yeah, and of course, in the first meeting, Grand Canyon got beat by 20. So they're used to playing close games against this team. Then all of a sudden, they get blown out in one. Obviously, this is a game that the Antelopes have very much had circled here throughout the course of the conference play season. We move on to Friday real quickly here. We haven't talked a whole lot of Horizon League because, quite frankly, it's kind of a boring conference this year where Wright State and Northern Kentucky are just so much better than everybody else. Well, they play again here in the regular season finale for both of these teams on Friday night. Wright State won the first meeting at home by 32 points. That was a Friday night. It was on ESPNU, and the Raiders very much showed up in that game. Can Northern Kentucky return the favor here with this game on Friday night and with ESPN on hand once again? I don't know what to make of Northern Kentucky. I mean, this Northern Kentucky team has been Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, they lost so badly to Wright State, like you said. And then I remember this game on uh, Sunday, February 16th against uh, Illinois Chicago. Uh, I was watching that game briefly. And and this was a game you didn't want to watch for very long, definitely. Uh, UIC was, I believe, maybe a 10-point underdog or something like that. I don't have it in front of me, but I know they were a big underdog at Northern Kentucky. At one point, they were winning 73-33, to UIC was, against Northern Kentucky. That said a lot about Northern Kentucky to me. You know, I know they were 4-for-32 for from three-point range in that game, but this team is not really that good. And I think their Horizon League is definitely down from what they have been in past years. Um, Northern Kentucky, a team that has had some injury troubles throughout the year, they're healthy now. They were even healthy for that loss uh, to UIC. To me, uh, I trust Wright State more than I trust uh, Northern Kentucky. At the same time, you know, do I really want to bet them in this game? Not really. I mean, this is this is one that I, I'd rather pass. Some of those other games we talked about earlier, I have stronger opinions on. Kyle Hunter, professional handicapper over at huntersportspicks.com and also bettersportspicks.com. What's going on over there right now, man? Yeah, I've got a lot going on. It's been a really good run here of late, to be honest. You know, I try not to toot my horn too often. I like to just give information here on the show. Um, 17 and 4 run. Uh, special offer here now through March 15th, which is Selection Sunday, which got to be honest with you, that's coming pretty soon, you know. So um, college basketball. All my plays now through March 15th. I'm going to run a special 199 bucks for all my plays through Selection Sunday. So you can kind of test out my service. You can message me at Kyle Hunter Picks on Twitter or Kyle at BetterSportsFix.com. And then I'm keeping up the special that uh, has been up over at HunterSportsFix.com. And that is the Basketball Fanatic Pass. That's all plays in college basketball and the NBA through the NBA Finals for $599. One thing I do want to mention real quickly here, because of a scheduling situation, we are recording this a little bit early here. So that's 17 and four run, hopefully something that you've built on uh, over the course of the weekend. I just want to make sure I throw that out there because like I said, uh, I'm tied up a little bit on Monday. So we are recording this a little bit early here, but nonetheless, you've been doing very well. And uh, hopefully man, that continues here as we finish out the college basketball regular season next week, we'll at least have Kyle on for the regular Monday segment. We'll see if we can maybe do something later in the week and hit on some more of these conference tournaments as well. But it's getting to be our favorite time of the year, man. 
I was just going to say, I'm looking forward to the next time we talk because that means conference tournaments. Well, there you go. Once again, there's Kyle Hunter, professional handicapper over at huntersportspicks.com, bettersportspicks.com as well, and at Kyle Hunter Picks on Twitter. Kyle, appreciate your time as always, man. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, man. Take care. There you go. There's Kyle Hunter. Once again, at Kyle Hunter Picks on Twitter, huntersportspicks.com is one website, bettersportspicks.com is the other. Coming up on our Tuesday edition of Bang the Book Radio, we'll chat NHL, some golf, some NASCAR, and God knows what else with Brian Blessing, the host of Sportsbook Radio and Vegas Hockey Hotline. That'll be our Tuesday edition of the show. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.